my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ideas from me that will empower you with knowledge so you can keep more of what you make. Coming up in just a few minutes in today's Clark Rageous Moment, there's a hot ripoff moving around the internet right now. I want to tell you what you need to know to protect yourself from this scam that can eat up your wallet. And later, speaking of your wallet, do you know that other people online are influencing you to the point where you're spending money you don't need to? Wait till you hear. So I want to talk about the problem of credit card fraud. Today, because of chip cards, the amount of fraud occurring with our credit cards out and about has reduced significantly to the point that it's really a flea on the back of an elephant for the Visa, MasterCard, Cartel, and American Express and Discover that when card is present, the fraud levels are almost insignificant now. I know, I know if you got hit with fraud that it doesn't feel insignificant to you, but overall, the fraud's way down. But where the fraud has boomed since is with online purchasing. Criminals are stealing people's numbers all different ways, and then they're having a blast buying things as if they're you. And this is ugly because it can cause you so many hassles, not your money if it's a credit card. You don't have to worry about the money, but it's still a hassle. You have to get a new number, get a new card, and all that. Well, now... Something that was a great idea at the time that nobody cared about probably about eight years ago has roared back over the last few months. And that is you having one-time use numbers. So this is something that more and more credit card issuers are making available to you, and you may not even know that they do it. Capital One has been a big player in what are known as virtual numbers or one-time use numbers. And Citibank, another large issuer, does one-time use numbers. Um, And a number of other issuers probably are doing it, and I'm not even aware they're doing it yet. But you will see this become a common thing, but a lot of consumers don't bother with it because it seems like a bother. It's really quick and easy. Producer Kim has been doing this with Capital One. Is that right? And explain the procedure will vary a little from issuer to issuer. But if you're shopping online, explain because you were all excited telling me about how easy it is for you to do one-time use numbers with Capital One when you're shopping online. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, if they didn't make it so easy, I doubt I would do it, but they constantly remind you if you do register for it. So you go to Capital One site, you register for it, and then anytime you're shopping online, it pops up a little module that basically says, hey, we see you're about to check out for something. Do you want a virtual number? And if you do, then it just prompts you to put in your password for Capital One. And after you put that in, 
You click a button and it populates all the numbers into the form you're filling out to make a purchase. And it's all numbers you've never seen before, including like a three digit code on the back. And it lets you label um, different online merchants. So like I have a consistent virtual number for Amazon, for a clothing store that I use, and you can alter that anytime you want to. It's, it is pretty easy. So under the Capital One system, it will have a different number for each merchant, but not issue a different number every time. That's right. That's right. If you want it to, it could, but it also asks you, do you want us to remember this merchant and just use this one? And that way, if there ever is fraud, it's very easy for them to track down exactly which merchant it is, which I guess is true with anyone they use the number on, right? Yeah, but it, it you're describing a process that they figured out mathematically reduces their risk to a level they're comfortable with having a number per merchant. Gotcha. And I think that's great. And so it is something I recommend in addition to suggestion we've had from several listeners and that is that you use only a card for all online shopping. Because if you use multiple cards, you really create a greater risk that a card that you use for online shopping should not be used anywhere else for any physical shopping and definitely for no automatic recurring payments because those get all messed up if your card number has to be changed. And there's no cost to these things because it's in everybody's interest, especially the merchant more than anybody else, that you use a system that reduces the chances of fraudulent transactions. Wayne is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Wayne. Hey, Clark. How you doing? Great. Thank you, Wayne. Uh, first of all, I see we're going to be talking about an inheritance here, and I'm really sorry about your loss. Yes, sir. So how can I serve you involving an inheritance? Well, I was wondering, you know, say, for instance, you have, uh, for all intents and purposes, a $50,000 inheritance. You have $30,000 in debt. Would you pay off that debt, or would you take that money to use for, like, an investment property that would bring in a residual income month in, month out? Well, okay, so this one gets tough. The debt you're talking about, how much is credit card debt versus home equity line versus who knows what? Uh, I would say 18000 of it is uh, credit card, and the other ones is uh, maybe furniture and, and things of that nature. Okay. So I love the idea you wiping those out as long as you will not use the credit cards going forward. Right. Because that's the real test. I've found over the years that if somebody comes into money and uses it to pay off a debt, that... Uh, the odds, unfortunately, are that they will get back in that debt typically in about a year and a half. So it's really more a question about you how I would answer that question. Okay, if you If you feel like you could handle paying off that debt and not having to worry about the debt reoccurring, pay off the debt because think right. about what – What's the interest rate you're paying on the furniture and the credit cards and all that? It's probably around 17, 18%? Correct. Yeah. So that's a huge return on your money. And you're not going right. to see that uh, typically in an in investment property. 
Okay. So paying off, paying off the debt would be right. And I, I would think that way, and, and I would think that would be the answer for you know the majority of cases. I just didn't know if an investment property would be something you'd say, you know what, hey, if that can bring in a residual, then maybe that would make sense. So think about this. So you pay off the the debt, and then you still have a little money left over, right? Correct. And moving forward, you're not going to have to pay interest or principal on any of that debt. You'll be able to come up with money at a much more efficient rate that you could okay. use at a later date to invest in a rental property because you won't have that burden of 18% interest hanging over your head. That makes a lot of sense. So best to you. And again, I'm really sorry about your loss. Bonnie's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Bonnie. Hey, Clark. Thank you very much. I've been listening to you for years and learning a lot. Well, great to have you here, Bonnie. You have an interesting question for me that I only get probably every three or four years. <laughs> okay. Yes, my question is whether I should continue with the life insurance policies I have for my two grandchildren, which are under five. Now, their dad has them covered, so mine's not a primary. But I was looking at those insurance policies as grow-up plans for them, but I'm thinking that might not be the smartest use of my money because if I quit paying them, then I lose the, quote, investment. Yeah, and so when you talk about that, you're talking about having life insurance on the life of your grandkids? Yes, and then when they turn 18, the policies like double in amount, and they can continue them for the same low premium, or they can cash them in. Okay, so... Uh, first things first, you don't want to have life insurance on the life of a child because children cost money, they don't make money. (laughs) The purpose of life insurance is to provide replacement of income for survivors. So your son needs to have life insurance in the event something tragic happened to him to provide for the needs of his children and uh, if he's married for his spouse. Yeah. His wife. Mm-hmm. But as far as life insurance on the kids, uh, I've I've never met a young kid who was the income earner. They're only the income right. spender. Right. <laughs> so there's right. a rare, rare circumstance the insurance companies will cite to try to make their case, which is mm-hmm. that what happens if a kid develops a medical condition that makes them uninsurable at some point before they reach adulthood where they might might want to buy life insurance. So that can happen, but the odds are so small that you can't predict every event in life. And that's why uh, I would not have life insurance on a child. I'm much more interested in if in your family culture, kids are going to go to college. What are the odds that these grandkids will go to college in your family? Probably not. We're probably going to go into other avenues of, you know, trade learning or, you know, doing other jobs that don't require college. We're not really interested in college in my family. Okay. But That's I why I always about, ask that question, what the yeah. culture is. Yeah. I'm, I was wondering about a Roth IRA because I've heard you talk so much about those. Is that something I can get for them or not? They can't do that yet because they've got to okay. be earning money. Gotcha. So, I mean, can I put it in? No. Okay, go ahead, sir. As an alternative... Um, I would look at putting money in either simple savings accounts for these grandchildren. Okay. Or you could open an investment account for each of them. You know, the two big low-cost stockbrokers, Charles Schwab and Fidelity Investments, 
mm-hmm. have no minimums on a child's account. Mm-hmm. And they don't need the savings, really. They need money invested for whatever they'd want to do oh. later. Okay. And so you can open an investment account for each of them and put money in it, and they can help you at either one. Like at Schwab, they have something called intelligent portfolios. Mm-hmm. And you just go in and say, okay, here's the money I got. And they can just open an intelligent portfolio that you pay nothing for. Okay. And it, you can add to the money as you wish each year. Again, okay. with no minimum. Gotcha. Now, I have a Fidelity 401k for my employer. So, so, you, so then Fidelity would be a great choice. Okay. And with very oh. young children, I would look at opening um, what's called a Fidelity Zero Fund. Okay. And put it in their total stock market index. Fidelity okay. Zero Total Stock Market Index. Zero Stock Market Index. Okay. And you could do that for each of the kids. The reason I like the Total Stock Market Index is it has extremely, well, no cost in this case, and is very favorable for the kids when they become adults and they go okay. to sell it. The tax treatment is much more favorable than it is on a savings account. Okay, that sounds great. So what I'll do is cancel the insurance policies and take that money that was automatically going each month and I'll go ahead and put it in the 401. Well, it's not a 401k. You'd open a child's <laughs> investment fidelity. account with Fidelity. <laughs> yeah. You're the owner of the account <laughs> That's what I for meant. the benefit okay. of your grandkids, a custodial okay. account. And you have to open one for each grandkid. Okay, sure. All right, well, that's awesome. I've been wondering for quite a while, so I knew you were the man to go to. Well, I hope that helps, and it's really sweet of you as a grandparent to do this for your grandkids. An oldie but baddie scam has roared back. It's today's Clark Rageous Moment. Scams, rip-offs, outrages. It's a Clark Rageous Moment. I'll just read it to you. It's an email that appears to be from Netflix. The subject, Netflix payment failed. Dear member, your Netflix account is on hold because of a problem with your last payment. We will automatically attempt to charge your card again within 24 to 48 hours. To prevent the suspension of all services, update and confirm your billing information today. So you click to update your information. You're taken to a page that looks exactly like the Netflix member portal. And you go to update your account. You give the crooks your username and password. You then go in and maybe uh, check to see, well, that account's right. I don't know what the problem would be. And so you bail out and then... They've got a phone number here and an email. You can contact them. Everything about it is crooked, phony, ripoff. There is no problem with your PayPal account. I'm sorry, PayPal, your Netflix account. There is no problem at all with your credit card number. It's just a what's known as a pretexting email that is scamming you with whatever layer of personal information they can steal from you. The worst part is because we reuse passwords over and over again on different sites, criminals may be able to use it when you sign in at what you think is Netflix account to go get into various accounts you have and cause all other kinds of mischief. If you ever receive an email from Netflix or anybody else saying there's a problem with your account, 
Never, 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 not ever click on the link in that email. Instead, say, huh, I guess that could happen. You instead go to the website yourself that you type in yourself on your phone's browser or your laptop's browser. Go to the website, sign in there, and you know you'll be at the right legitimate place. And then you'll know if it's a pretext scam or the real deal. Odds are, overwhelmingly, it's just a scam email. Don't get taken. Joel, I think we have time to sneak in one Ask Clark here. Let's do a Clark Earl Road, and he said, what's a good rate for a broker or an investment company to charge for account maintenance as a percentage of the money invested? So when you say account maintenance, you're really talking about an advisory fee or a management fee. The standard advisory fee is 1%, but that's if somebody is managing your account for you. Those fees go as low as 0.25% depending on which company you use. If you go with a discount broker, there's no such fee. Glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about your empowerment with knowledge so you can save more and spend less and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Whenever I do something in schools, usually for television, and I'm talking to students of all ages from being in elementary school through high school, There's one thing that I do, and I put up a picture of two different, imagine, um, two families, cartoon picture of two different families, and one shows a family smiling in front of a big house, the fancy car, and a bunch of fancy electronics, plus a boat. Then the other picture is a smiling family with a modest home, old car, and not a lot of gadgets or gizmos. And then I ask the kids, and it's a trick question, and by the way, it does not matter if I ask fourth graders or twelfth graders. I always get the same answer, which is a riot. I ask the kids to vote if family A are the millionaires or family B are the millionaires. And overwhelmingly, the students vote that the family with the big house in the picture and the fancy car and all that is the millionaire family. I remember speaking to a fifth grade class in a TV segment and did the trick question. And out of, uh, I think there were 24 kids in the fifth grade class, only one, only one said that the B family was the millionaire family. Now, it was a trick question. It is a trick question. But the idea is that we judge whether people are rich or not based on what things they have instead of how much money they have. And there's a new study that finds that social media is intensifying people's spending. That the more we see people on some kind of exotic trip, on a Facebook feed or other social media, or we see people 
on uh, a video on YouTube of the great cruise they're taking or the new car they have, wherever they're seeing online with people's online personas. You know, nobody ever posts, hey, here's my Visa card that I owe $6,200 to and I'm paying 17.1% interest. No, people post the item they use the Visa card to buy, not the bill that exists. Now, you may be wondering if I'm oversimplifying this. Well, there's been a lot of research done that started with a now-deceased professor named Professor Stanley, ended up writing a best-selling book called The Millionaire Next Door and The Millionaire Mind, and I think his daughter writes books now about this whole concept that when you drill down to the typical millionaire, the typical millionaire drives an old mid-price car and lives in a fairly simple house and lives a very frugal existence. Because it goes right in line with, if you're a longtime listener to me, you've always heard me say, it's never what you make that counts. It's what you don't spend that matters. So know that when you see all those people smiling wide about all the great things they've done and all the things they've bought and all that, the question is, how are they going to pay for it? I remember years ago when I ran an alternative school that one of my teachers who worked for me at the school, when, uh, when somebody went by who we knew who was in a new fancy vehicle, she said, somebody said, look, he must be doing real well. Look at that car he's got. And she said one word, least. <laughs> Kevin's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Clark. I'm calling in uh, reference to veterans. I uh, support your support of our veterans and our active duty military. And I was calling about uh, if you could give us some updates on veterans discounts available from time to time. And in particular, I'm calling about flights at this time. So there's not a lot of great discounts on air flights, but there are a lot of discounts at many different kinds of stores, many different restaurants. And we um, update this list twice a year. And it's weird that you're asking about this because our most recent update was just a couple of months ago. So the information is really, really current. And we have uh, a guide to what each individual company offers to military personnel. And uh, some of them offer also to police and firefighters as well, uh, various discounts. And uh, I, I went into a place recently when I was on a drill weekend, and I was in uniform, and the woman, uh, I'm a regular at this breakfast place, and the woman said, I never knew you were in the military. You should have been getting a 10% discount all this time. And I was like, well, that's okay. It's all right. But I appreciate it, and I'm glad it's there. So you can look through, if you do, um, if you go to Clark.com and you do the search term 
military discounts, you'll be able to see our list. Also, do you ever go on the website military.com? Uh, not very often, no, sir. So on military.com, they have discounts set out by category. Travel is one of the categories that they specialize in, and they have the discounts that are available with different players. And um, there are, on their list, there are two airlines that do offer discounts to military personnel in addition to a ton of other deals that are available in the travel area for military personnel. Okay, sounds good. Thank you, sir. And thank you for your service. Which branch do you serve in? I was in the Air Force. I'm a veteran. Oh, oh how many years did you have? Uh, nine. Nine years. So sir. what was it that kept you from going to 20 uh, my career field. Oh, I'm sorry. Because, right. you know, that's not really an issue anymore because the way military pensions work has changed. And so most people who join the military do not stay 20 years when there had historically been a great pension benefit. So now the benefits have been changed so that they are significantly better than they were before for people who serve our great nation for less than 20 years. And thank you for your nine years of service. Nick is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Nick. Hello, Clark. How are you doing? Great. Thank you, Nick. How can I serve you? Well, uh, I've got a question regarding veterinary pet insurance. Uh, what do you think about that? Is it a good deal to get that, or uh, would I be better off to just put the money aside uh, in case uh, something happens to the dog? Well, my answer has always been that you're better off just setting money aside. But a lot of people very strongly disagree with me about my idea of setting up an emergency fund and the reason I've been so into that is the pet policies, even though the brochures, either the physical ones that you might see at a veterinary medicine practice or when you look online, the big problem are the exclusions. No matter how fancy the coverages are, they say, there are so many exclusions based on breed and then mm-hmm. the age of the animal itself. Um, But if you do want to buy a pet policy, Consumer Reports has put together a guide on what are the things you want to ask, what are the things you want to look for before you buy one. I also think that your vet is a really good place to turn because the veterinary medicine practice should know, based on historical treatment of people who come in with policies for their pets, which policies tend to pay off better than others? Okay. I uh, will check out the consumer reports, and I will talk to the vet and see what they think, and uh, appreciate uh, the words. Absolutely. You know, the reason this has become more of an issue is that uh, we've had a shift. You know, people now do... Uh, heroic kind of procedures and treatments for pets 
that people did not consider before. Our nation's culture and relationship to pets has changed. And when a pet had a major illness, overwhelmingly as recently as a generation ago, people would just uh, make sure their pet was comfortable and that would be it. But they today, every pretty much every procedure that humans have for a major illness is now available for pets and can be frightfully expensive. And that's why all the interest in buying a pet policy. And Joel, would you like to do an Ask Clark here? Let's do it, Clark. Andy wrote in, he says, when looking for a new credit card, what are good terms, conditions, and fees that I should be looking for? Well, that is a pretty wide question, so I can take that any way I want. So let me tell you how I take that. If you are someone who runs a balance on a credit card, I want you to look specifically at credit union credit cards. They tend to have interest rates that are from one-third to one-half as high as you have with a bank-issued credit card. Credit unions are co-ops. They're there to uh, serve their members. They are not there to make a profit. And so the interest rates charged will be a lot lower. If, on the other hand, you are a net payer, meaning you use credit cards as a payment system, then I want you to look at getting reward cards, either fee-free reward cards or even considering one with an annual fee. And the difference is typically based on what you want a card benefit to be and how much charge volume you'll typically run up. If you're running up a charge volume of less than $4,000 a month, keep it simple. Get a card that has no annual fee, and get a card that pays you something like cash back. I have two favorite cash back cards. One is the City Double Cash card that effectively pays 2% cash back on everything. And the other is the Fidelity Investments credit card that pays 2% back into an investment account, a college savings plan account at Fidelity, or a retirement account at Fidelity. If you're into rewards, though, and you charge your charge volume more than $4,000 a month, that's when you consider paying an annual fee, and that's also when you consider a travel card. Um, only buy a card buy, because you're paying an annual fee, from the three full fare airlines, American, United, and Delta, if you fly a particular airline, one of those three, a minimum of two trips a month. If you fly them less than that, paying the annual fee and the miles you'll earn are not worth it for having a single airline aligned card, in which case you're best off with either the Capital One Venture card or the Barclays World Arrival MasterCard. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget 
giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Carmen is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Carmen. Wow, Clark Howard. It's great to speak with you. Well, it's great to have you here. We find that we have about $1,500 a month extra, and I'm at a crossroads here as to what we should do with that extra, if we should save for retirement or if we should help our children with their student loans. So we have two daughters who are in college currently. One's in a third year and one's in in her fourth year. And we've amassed uh, about 110000 in um, student loans between both of them. And so, you know, we, we oh, do have a mortgage. You're on the hook for those then, aren't yeah, you? Yes, yes, we are. Um, and, but we, we've done it, you know, we did it because we wanted to help our girls make sure that they get a good step up. But, you know, we're going to start paying that off now. And, and uh, we have a mortgage that we're paying on and we have old cars that we drive. And so, like, we've been able to pare down on various expenses. And I got to ask you a very rude question, Carmen. How old are you and your husband? I'm 52 and my husband's 58. All right. Well, I don't want you going into retirement with all that student loan debt that you're going to have to deal with. But at the same time, what what do you have to live on in retirement? Do either of you have a pension from where you work? No, we don't have pension. We have uh, both my husband and I uh, participate in our employer's 401k, okay. and uh, I've been able to we've we've been able to amass quite a bit in in the one that I, at my employer. Great. Uh, my husband has a few smaller ones. He's he's gone from a couple different jobs, so uh, they don't have a significant balance. All right. So uh, you're going to be the main breadwinner, really, in retirement at this point. Well, we, but yes. Yeah. So. <laughs> Well, because you've been able to accumulate that money. So I don't want you to go backwards with that, but uh, do either of you have matches on your 401ks? Yes, we do. We both have a 4% match. I have uh, 16% that's coming out of my check every week and with the 4%, so we're up at 20% on my check. Great. And my husband is 4% with no match. Now, my amount is not quite maxed out. It could go up a little bit more. That's all right. Even le- continuing to do that, and you're building up reserves for retirement, you still have fifteen hundred free. Yes, and I've been I've been um, uh, saving for the rainy day fund, so we have we have enough in a rainy day. So it's about two months of reserve. Wonderful. So, so not, I would say I would say keep doing exactly what the two of you are doing, saving for retirement, and then the fifteen hundred you freed up with the discipline you've shown with the credit card debt and stuff. All of that goes towards starting to eat away at this student loan debt. Okay. Because you're 50, you said 58 and 52, Mm -hmm. and I don't want you to hit a point where you're not working anymore and you're still sitting there with a hundred plus thousand in student loan debt. So if you are putting what's effectively nearly 20,000 a year against it, you're going to be able to have it pretty much extinguished by the time you're both ready to retire, and that would be the goal. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com. 